NASM family. This week on the Master Instructor Roundtable, myself, Marty Miller, here with my co-host and dear friend, Ms. Wendy Batts. We are going to be speaking about the posterior chain. So I'm excited for today's topic. Wendy, thanks for jumping in as always. And I definitely can't wait to hear what you have to say about your favorite parts of the body here in the posterior chain. Yes, everyone seems to be a little bit weaker on the posterior chain side. So one of the reasons Marty and I wanted to do this was because we had some great questions that came in asking us about our favorite exercises that we do when we're specifically focusing on this chain. So let's get into it. I like it. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? First and foremost, we have to talk about what is the posterior chain. So that when we throw that term around peer to peer, we know exactly what we're referring to. You got to speak to your clients maybe a little bit differently, but in the vernacular out there in the fitness world, even on social media, I do hear posterior chain uh, discussed a lot. So I think people are going to know what that is. But then most importantly, how do you train the posterior chain throughout the entire model, right? This isn't just a power phase or a strength phase. You're going to be going after these posterior chain uh, movement patterns and muscles throughout every phase of training. And then without a doubt, we always like to leave some time to tell you what our favorite posterior chain exercises are and why. Yes. And, and I think we are going to discuss the subsystems too, because obviously if you understand the subsystem, especially dealing with the posterior chain, then that also helps kind of clear up everything. So, so Marty, when we talk about the posterior chain, we've got to look at it being, you know, people seem to associate the posterior chain just backside mm -hmm. or for some reason, more lower body. However, the upper body and lower body all on the backside are the muscles that we're going to be talking about and in showing you some exercises that we do for those specific muscles. So as we go through it, the upper body muscles, we're going to talk about, of course, the lats, the rhomboids, the rear delt, uh, mid to lower trap and the erector spinae. And then of course, in the lower body region, the glute max, it's all about the big house always, right? Um, hamstrings, specifically more the bicep femoris, long head, and then the calf complex. Yeah. And I was having this conversation with a young and up and coming uh, fitness professional and a couple others. And, you know, we were talking about physiques and we we're talking about athletes, you know, and obviously there's different goals you can aspire to if you want to look a certain way. But I always told them from um, an athletic standpoint or martial arts standpoint, I'm always leery of those athletes or those individuals with an incredibly well-developed and built posterior chain. And what I mean by that is big backs, big glutes, big hamstrings. Those are your performance type of athletes. Yes, it might be great to have the six pack abs and a big chest, but if you look at production of force and, you know, elite sports, most of them, if they, especially as they get higher and higher level from high school to college, to different levels of college into maybe semi-pro or pro, that posterior chain is going to do a lot in human performance, whether it's uh, performance enhancement or, and, or injury prevention. And I am happy to see more and more people in the gym that are going more for cosmetics are starting to train the posterior chain because this still has a great carryover to everyday life. Well, and if you're going through and looking at the assessment, I think you're going to notice too that a majority of the underactive muscles that you're going to see in the common compensations, they're weaker on the posterior side. And that's mainly because of what people do daily, sitting in the chairs, on the computers, some sort of technology with their heads in a, in a forward downward position. So as you look, look through these muscles that we're talking about, think about how often you're little, especially if you're going through the corrective exercise specialization, 
most people are definitely weaker in the rhomboids because they're in the rounded forward position. Same thing with rear, rear delt, excuse me, um, and mid to lower traps are usually very weak. And then if we have any kind of um, non-neutral spine, then the erector spinae is either overactive and causing some of those compensations. And, or if you're having weaker erector spinae, you're going to see some people more in a hunched over position. And so when we're going through this, think about, okay, what are the muscles that you do for your clients? Maybe Marty and I can spark some interest in some of the ones that we do. And, and just know that the posterior chain, if you can spend a lot of time on it, there is a lot of just helpful ways to make someone feel better and look better, but you're going to notice that these are often very weak. Yeah. And when you look at the NASM OPT model, it was a performance model based on human performance from its origination. And when you look here, not shockingly that uh, there's so many of those muscles that are underactive that we talk about, you know, the lats and the erector spinae may be the ones that on occasion might be overactive, but they could still be weak. So, you know, this is, again, everybody's going to be an athlete that you train. It's going to be very important to go through these and make sure that your clientele base have a uh, well-functioning posterior chain throughout all the phases of the model. So let's talk about the subsystems. And Marty, you and I have done multiple webinars talking about the subsystems because sometimes this can get a little confusing, especially if you're new to NASM or even just new with biomechanics and human movement science. This wasn't something that NASM really put together. It's just part of why we do what we do. And so when we talk about really focusing on the regional interdependence model and how it starts at the foot and ankle and works its way up, these subsystems become heavily important, especially when we're talking about certain um, areas of the body. So let's first talk about the posterior oblique subsystem. And you're going to see here these muscles that are involved, you know, think about where the foot striking the ground and then how it affects everything from the foot to the head. And then when we're specifically talking about this one, it's made up of the lats, the thoracolumbar fascia. So the connective tissue from the lower back that blends into the lats and then the contralateral, so opposite glute max. And so when we tell people to train in a contralateral way, we walk that way, we move that way. I'm left-handed, so if I go to pick something up, I'll stand on my right leg, bend over, pick it up, usually with my left hand, because that's how we walk, that's how usually we move. So when Marty and I talk a lot about the said principle and getting what you train for, that's one of the reasons we do that, because this subsystem works with these particular muscles. And so with the lats and the contralateral glute, that's going to create that straight line with each other across the SI joint or the sacroiliac, oh, geez, the sacroiliac joint. Um, it, I can't even say it. Sacroiliac. Say it for me, Marty. Can't do it right now. The sacroiliac joint. The, Thank you. The and it, which is the, the, the joint between the sacrum and the ilium bones. And so it's a very important joint that often gets locked down if we have common compensations. And as you rotate in extension or rotation, we want to make sure that that bone is also moving or that joint is moving appropriately. Yeah. And Wendy, you know, we, we teach triple flexion, triple extension. We'll talk about that here again. So let's view the step up. You know, a lot of people or most people that are watching this today have done some version of step up, even if it's two inches to four inches, it doesn't have to be a big step up. But if I am putting my foot on the step with my right side and I drive up through my left, and that's in triple flexion, right? Ankle dorsiflexion, knee flexion, hip flexion, 
my contralateral arm or my right arm now should be an elbow flexion and shoulder flexion. That's exactly what we're doing subconsciously or consciously, whether you know it or not, that is loading that posterior oblique subsystem to work together as I'm firing. And then as I go into triple extension, my arm on that opposite side would go into shoulder extension and elbow extension. That's how that force is created. So simple things like that. You don't even realize why that feels more comfortable or should feel more comfortable, but it plays right in here to the posterior oblique subsystem. Well said, Marty. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah. now we'll jump in here next, the deep longitudinal subsystem. So we're going to talk about the subsystems by themselves, but do they all intertwine? Of course, but we're talking about things, you know, as they are in each subsystem. And before I even get into the deep longitudinal subsystem, what I am happy about the evolution of fitness is when I first got into it, it was very body part by body part, seated chest press, seated rows, seated lap pull downs, right? More of that isolation type of mindset. Now fitness, whether you use the term functional or integrated, right? That could be a whole other conversation. People are starting to make movement patterning, which is phenomenal because now we are playing into the human movement subsystems you know, we still got to make sure that there's no uh, issues with the five connect chain checkpoints, but I'm just glad to see that there has been that tradition uh, transition into just from isolated into integrated training. But now, as we look here, the deep longitudinal subsystem includes the muscle, of the lower leg, hamstring, and low back. So you're still going to see the bicep femoris here. You'll see that in some others, the rectus spinae there, and they work together synergistically to create a contraction tension. So as you absorb and control ground force reactions, that's what's going to help create that ability to stabilize the eccentric and then produce force in the opposite direction, direction concentrically. So this is what you're doing every single day in walking, running, any of your gait patterns, the deep longitudinal subsystem plays a very important role in reducing and producing force. Well, and I think it's important too to, to note that the deep longitudinal subsystem and the posterior oblique sus subsystem, while there are independent subsystems, they do work together very, very well as long as you have good biomechanics and we have good range of motion in the foot and ankle complex, as well as in the knee and the hip. And so when we talk about, you know, doing squats and we're talking about loading certain, you know, areas and certain muscles, we want to have ideal alignment. So therefore we do have each joint sharing its correct load. So when we talk about synergistically, you know, working together, that's important because remember all synergistic dominance means as you know, that you've got a prime mover working and then um, we've got the two helpers or the, the muscles that are supposed to be helping. They are actually doing the job of helping and not producing the force that the prime mover was intended to because of some compensation. So these are very, very important. And one of the reasons why, you know, think about how you walk. It's opposite arm, opposite leg. You run that way. If not, you know, even people in the speed ladder, it's actually really interesting for me teaching someone how to utilize the speed ladder on, the, you know, using their feet in different patterning, how sometimes their arms are in totally different <laughs> ways of how we walk and run. And you're like, no, opposite arm, opposite leg. It's weird because sometimes people start to do you know, same side or ipsilateral, like same arm, same leg. And it looks odd. It feels odd, but they don't even know that their body is moving that way because they're retraining their brain now with different patterning. Oh, wait, this is how I'm supposed to, to move. And, and so it's actually something that I find fascinating. And uh, one thing that, that I think kind of brings us back to the importance of these different subsystems. 
Yeah. And that's why, you know, we finished with the integration, right? We go through the model uh, from corrective exercise and then we put it all together because we have these subsystems have to work well if we want to do the things that most of our clients are coming in and asking uh, to do as far as burn calories, you know, see their fitness goals, uh, move through a logical progression. So that's why we're here today. So now let's move on from the deep module subsystem to now um, some other popular posterior chain exercises. So we talked about the, the two main ones here, but Wendy, I had to leave this in here uh, right off the bat for you. We love bridges. Everybody's doing bridges, which is great. Now we're here more to talk about some progressions and why to do it. Obviously there's form and technique. So you'll see that, you know, I did circle our uh, individual's hand here on the far left because he's an internal rotation. We're always going to say, put it into a neutral or external rotated position from a posture. Does it change the glute activation? Probably not, but we're always trying to sneak extra things in there. So a glute bridge is a phenomenal posterior chain exercise. And this is one of the ones that could be a stability-based, a strength-based, or even a power-based if you know how to load it properly. So obviously we want to make sure the contraction is being driven from the glutes, right? I always say, Wendy, I want to, you know, have you... Um, think that you're holding the winning lottery ticket. And I think the last one was like $1.5 billion. So you're going to squeeze those glutes and hide it from everybody as you drive up into extension. A couple key things we need to be careful of is if they feel it in their low back or their hamstring, right? We need to cue to make sure they find a neutral position in the spine and drive through the glutes to a range that they can control because those synergistic muscles that want to assist may jump in. So this should be something that they're only feeling in the glutes. And you'll see here, we've got a one-legged version. There's different progressions. You can come up with two legs, kick out, come back down with two. We've talked about this progressions, Wendy, and some of our other master structure roundtables. And then you can look at the mini bands, right? You can, the top one there could be more of a speed or power based. And then obviously uh, with the mini band around the knees, that maybe that's for someone that, where their knees are caving in, you're putting that pressure to maintain a neutral position of the knees to get more glute medius activation. Yes. And today on the Master Instructor Roundtable, uh, Marty Miller and myself, Wendy Bouts, are talking about the posterior chain. We get these questions a lot. So we've already gone through and talked about the different subsystems. Um, these are the ones that we're specifically going to talk about today in some of the exercises we are now showing you. Glute bridge, like you said, Marty, is one of my favorite. And, you know, I think sometimes we jump into, oh, I need to lift heavy, especially during the, the glutes um, or trying to get the glutes to fire. As we talked about, because it common compensation is the anterior pelvic tilt or the forward, you know, rotation of, of the hips, the glutes are not activating the way that they're intended to activate and work to its full potential. Are they working? Yes. Do we have more synergistic dominance, meaning we have hamstring and low back working more sometimes instead of the prime mover? Yes. When that compensation exists, that's the issue. So when you're going through and thinking about activation exercises, start someone like Marty just did on like with this example on the floor, because we try to go too, too fast sometimes by thinking that this is too easy. And if people are saying, like Marty said, if you feel this in the hamstrings, this is not a hamstring exercise. That means that their glutes don't want to work and the hamstring, which is a synergist is trying to help the prime mover. So if, if a client is, is saying they feel this in the hamstrings and don't ask them where they're feeling it. Ask, where do you feel it? Because if you say, do you feel this in the glutes? They're going to say, I absolutely do. And they may not even know what the glutes are. So have them point to where they're feeling it. But if the hamstrings are a part of that, 
the simple way to cue them out of that is bringing the heels back towards their glutes. If they're feeling it too much in the knees, they're too far in and they need to walk their feet out. So we want this to be very, very glute specific. And then as Marty said, when you progress, you can put, I put weights on my client's hips all the time. I give them the weight, they place it on the hips. You can use a bar. I mean, there are a lot of books out there and people that are making a bunch of money by just loading the glutes, doing basically a hip hinge and or this, a, a glute bridge but lifting a lot of load. And as long as the load is placed in the glutes, it's great. However, if they're using and feeling different muscles in their lower back, it's too heavy. If they're feeling it in their hamstrings, it's wrong. So only progress when it's right. And just know there are so many different variations and switch it up. Because I mean, I do it on the floor, I'll have clients put their head and shoulders on the ball. There's a lot of fascinating and easy ways to change up the bridge, but still focus only on the prime mover, which is the glute. No, nope, I love those. So great, great stuff. So as we move here now, deadlifts have become incredibly popular, different versions of deadlifts. So we're not going to get into every single one, but I think the two that we need to speak to are deadlifts and then Romanian deadlifts. And then obviously, you know, single leg. So single leg, I'm going to start with there on the right, only because, you know, we're thinking about stabilization phase first. That's how my mind works is you don't have to have the dumbbells there. This individual is doing really good form. Chin's just about the right position. Obviously, we're assuming that there's a slow, controlled tempo. There's different ways you can also uh, do the single leg. But the key thing is that movement patterning, slow and controlled, right? Pausing on uh, that position that he's in there, driving up back into triple extension. So I love it from the foot and ankle standpoint. Some progressions could be to go from having a shoe on to a shoe off. If you're allowed to do that in the facility, that's going to create more instability, the foot and ankle and make those glute muscles work even more. So if you're going to load these, it's probably going to be a, you know, a lower weight that depends on the person, of course, but we're looking at that 12 to 20 reps. And if you've ever done a single leg Romanian deadlift for 12 <laughs> reps, at a four, two, two tempo, boy, oh boy, are you feeling it? And we know that from the EMG studies, single leg exercises work phenomenal. And then there's nothing wrong with a traditional deadlift, earn the right to get there, right? Get that ankle motion, hip mobility, core stability, firing up before you start to pick up a heavier load. So on a strength block, nothing wrong with that five repetition deadlift. But the key thing is make sure that you've are capable. And that would be the mobility of your foot and ankle, the mobility of the hip, the structural integrity around the spine. You've earned that right by starting to move through the strength phase. And then when you get to max strength, maybe some of you will do five reps. Uh, it's not an exercise I do incredibly heavy. I'll, I'll share my secret here in a minute on a future slide where I put most of my effort into for the heavier and more explosive, but I'm absolutely okay with it. If you can complete it, without breaking your five kinetic chain checkpoints. Well, and I'm going to, you know, the questions that I always get or exactly the, with this picture on the right hand side, <clears throat> and Marty, you even said this too, you've got to, you know, kind of earn the right. One thing that we teach in the very beginning. So this is more of an advanced exercise that Marty has on here for the single leg. We try to make sure first and foremost, especially if you've gone through our content to teach the fundamental movement patterns, which is the hinge. And so a lot often we've seen people not be able to hinge correctly because they round their back, they drop their head, they round their shoulders. So once you've taught someone how to properly hinge on two feet without weight, just learning how to hinge, 
then go single leg. But what I would tell you to start with is to have the other leg that you're not on just hover next to the ankle of the placed foot on the ground. And what that does is that helps someone that's new to this be able to maintain neutral position of the spine first, really fire up the hamstring and glute, which is what you're using when you're coming up out of that deadlift, come into full hip extension, pause, and then repeat. And then as they want to progress, as Marty said, there's a lot of variations. You can stand on an Airx pad. You can take your shoe off. You can challenge it with heavier weight and you can do it opposite arm, opposite leg as well, instead of two arms. So if he's standing on his left foot, just put the weight in the right hand. Think about the posterior oblique subsystem we just talked about working contralaterally. So that's a way to think about the subsystem working with this and then bring the leg straight out. It's very difficult for someone sometimes to bring the leg straight out and maintain proper alignment in that hip. So they go here first, but they haven't, as Marty said, earned the right to bring that leg out. So start with the leg next to the floor. And then at that point, do some different single arms. And then at that point, drive the leg back and see how they do, because we always want to have proper and quality movement instead of just look what I can do. I'm working my hamstring. Yeah. And the other thing is this is one of those posterior chain exercises that does implement upper body as well on the single leg or any of the remaining of You're not really maximizing the load like you would in a deadlift on the upper body, but it is that bridge for a total body posterior chain where bridge, I guess, pun intended is only going to be working on the lower extremity part of the posterior chain. So just think those things through as you're designing your program, you do eventually want a full total body posterior chain exercise. Mm -hmm. Oh, Marty, this one, this, yes. I'll let you start because this is your bread and butter. <laughs> yes. As you guys have heard multiple times, I always say the squat to row is one of my favorite exercises because of what it incorporates. It incorporates so many different things. And so if someone's new to a squat to row, I will start them with their feet, both of them planted on the ground and the proper five kinetic chain checkpoints, especially if someone is lacking proper range of motion uh, in their ankle. So if that's the case, what the cable does with the weight, it actually allows you a little bit more dorsiflexion because it's bringing you forward and it's teaching the pattern movement. So therefore, if someone is struggling with getting good range of motion and you're, you don't want to use like a ball against the wall and squat that way, this is an exceptional way to start making sure that the things are lined up correctly and the right muscles are firing correctly. As we talked about with the, the deep longitudinal subsystem, we're really focusing a lot on the foot and ankle, trying to get the glute to work, right? However, we also want to think about the other uh, uh, posterior oblique subsystem with the glute and the contralateral lat and think about the rhomboids and everything that we're, we're trying to really hit on the posterior chain. So therefore, once they've gotten a good squat to row with two legs planted, I then love one of my favorites, the single leg squat to row. So as you can see pictured on the right hand side, she's standing on her left foot. The weight is in her right hand. That's how she should look when you're properly standing. That right foot could hover a little bit closer to the left ankle if you want, as long as she's maintaining really good neutral position of the hip. And then she would go down nice and slow for four counts, pause at the bottom, drive up, squeeze for one or two seconds, and then repeat. 
So one of the absolute, in my opinion, best integration exercises because it is total body and one of my favorites and probably will be until the day I die. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I knew that we would have to have this one on here and when you did a great job explaining it. So don't have to go into much more detail than that, except the other thing that I like about it is it also forces core activation and helps with that glute activation. So you get that accidental exercise that you've heard uh, me talk about all the time. So if you're just joining in right now on the Master Instructor Roundtable, Wendy Batts and myself, Marty Miller, we're talking about the posterior chain. We've talked about the anatomy that makes it up. And now we're going through our some of our favorite exercises that really do a great job targeting that posterior chain. Plus, there's a lot of progressions and regressions you can build off of these. So Wendy, you know, our mindset here with NASM is always an evidence-based approach. We're going to stick to the science. And one of the things that I love for posterior chain, and we've done things on this before, is the sled push. And the reason I love the sled push is not only is it fun, not only is it something that gets people excited, right? Because you're moving something or maybe you're using uh, the Technogym skill run, but however you're doing it, if you're doing it properly, it's, it, it's a cool experience, but the science backs it up. So sled push stimulus potentiates sub, uh, subsequent 200 meter sprint performance. They're finding that it actually, but this is what it was designed for, that it helps your explosive start out of the gate. But what is accelerating you as you're sprinting is the posterior chain. And then we also found that resisted sled sprint training to improve spin performance. So there was a systematic review. But another piece of research that I've read is that a sled push activates the glutes as much as or more than a squat, sumo squat, and deadlift. Right there what? to me. Yeah, exactly. Because here's what I love about it. Let's, let's look at the sled push in a risk versus reward compared to those other exercises. By no means am I not going to say to do a back squat if you're capable and your five connect chain checkpoints in order. I'm not going to tell you not to do a deadlift under those same circumstances. Sumo squat, we've talked about it. Not my favorite for different reasons, biomechanically. But you're loading your spine. There's no question that if I put a bar on my back or if I do a deadlift, I have to put some load into the spine. Okay? There is risk with that. I'm not saying that it's always going to be bad, but there is risk. On a sled push... I'm forced to engage my core because I'm pushing into it like it's a wall and I'm going to get more glute activation. But the fabulous thing is there's always one foot in contact with the ground. I don't have to run. I don't have to jump. So even if you have someone who has had previous injuries or other factors, the impact is a lot less doing a sled push, but the results will show you that you're going to get the same or more glute activation than if you did some of those higher risk exercises. So you also get in some metabolic conditioning, depending how you use it. So for me, whether it's, you know, me trying to do it as explosively as possible, or maybe somebody else that's older than me, like my mom, it might be a more methodical march with the sled. If you have it in your facility, to me, it's a must. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of the sled as well. Um, as you guys know, we've talked about, you know, my athletes using this, this is what they need, especially if let's say you have a football player, you're coming off the line, you've got a huge lineman in front of you, you need that power quickly. And you need to be able to be as explosive as possible. Same thing with runners off the blocks, basically any type of sport. But to your point, Marty, I use this with a lot of my clients who are CEOs, even because it changes it up. It's fun. 
to your point of not loading the spine, I know that it's safer. And even though their spine, when we say that loading the spine, guys, that's why we really spend a lot of time in phase one and two. We're making sure that our spine can handle the load that we're going to place upon it, especially in phase three. But another thing that I really like about this is, like you said, the muscles that are being activated first and foremost, but the second part is it forces you to go into triple extension and triple flexion, which are the everyday movements that you need in just walking and, and everyday activity. So it's forcing me to retrain my brain too, that even though now I've got weight and I'm pushing something, this is what my body needs to do, even when I'm just loading my own body weight, moving and propel, propelling forward. Yeah, and there's some other benefits to it. You're going to get shoulder scapulas, uh, you know, engagement, things like that. But also, it's a great way to teach other movement patterns, right? That triple flexion, triple extension, as you're saying, it, it might be hard to teach someone to sprint, you know, if they, if just, you know, outside or in the gym. But if you're having them do a sled push, they're going to learn those mechanisms and that movement patterning without having to do a lot of coaching. So it is great as a carryover to teaching more advanced techniques as well. Go push that sled. Now, another one that I'm incredibly partial to is a rower. I use the Techno Gym Skill Row, but rowing is rowing. And the fabulous thing about rowing is it's a seated version of triple flexion, triple extension. Now, there are some techniques to rowing properly between the catch, the drive, the finish, the recovery. I get all that. Let's assume that you can learn that, you know, your starting position, if you're looking, you know, straight vertical, like if it was a clock, not a digital 12 o'clock, your starting position is 11, your finished positions one. So you're going from flexion to extension, but you're driving your feet into that platform. So you start in dorsiflexion, you're driving into plantar flexion, you're starting in knee extension, you're driving in, I'm sorry, you start in knee flexion, you drive into knee extension. Same thing, the starting position is hip flexion, you're driving into hip extension, and then spinal extension. So it's a great sequencing, it's a great way to train that posterior chain, but once again, you can use it for conditioning, and it's just another way to get high-level posterior chain activation without having to pick exercises that will load the spine. So you can use it as a warm-up, you can use it for conditioning, and you can use it during that undulating periodization where maybe you don't want to go through a heavy lift, like a squat or a deadlift. Mm -hmm. I use this a lot as well. In between, you know, I'll do my core balance and reactive usually with my, with my clients. And then at that point, I'll have them get on the rower. I'll either give them a certain time that I want them to go or a certain output of wattage that I want them to hit. And it's also really fun on a competitive side. So in order just, just switch things up, we know that, that the mid to lower trap is very um, weak in a majority of our clients. We've discussed that. We know why. So this is just something, too, on a cardio side, whether it's metabolic, metabolic, oh, geez, I cannot talk today, metabolically um, for a short period of time or whether you're doing it for, you know, a longer amount of time, meaning am I doing this for 30 seconds? Am I doing this for 20 minutes? It's one of those things that is it is activating muscles that are usually underactive on the upper body, especially. But it is important, too, to make sure that mechanics are, are done correctly and that you're lining these people up, meaning your clients, as successfully as possible. Because I'll see people not not strap their feet in straight and all of a sudden their toes are going out when they're going back into the row, their heads are moving forward or they're staying in a, in a spinal flex position. So form is always going to be very, very important. 
but just make sure too, because you can change, especially on um, the one that Marty's showing here, you can change how hard to, how much power or how much weight, I guess, Marty, is that what uh, it is? Air resistance into a resistance. magnetic resistance. Yeah. So you want to make sure too, that your client can handle whatever amount of load you're asking them to pull back on. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about chain driven rowers, right? We're not talking about the, uh, the water rowers, things like that. It's a different piece of equipment is you're going to see their wattage, right? So you're going to see how long can I maintain that wattage? How high can I get that wattage? Right? So that's another indicator of their performance with their posterior chain. And this is the perfect warm up for the days you're going to squat, run, jump, hinge, right? You're getting that great warm up neuromuscularly after your targeted warm up that we would do to get into that. So it's, it's a must. And that's why I have it upstairs. And it <laughs> Hey, we use it too. I hear you. <laughs> um, but the key takeaways again, guys, the posterior chain is so important. And I think we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, breaking it up and not really looking at the posterior chain as a whole. So in understanding the importance of it, seeing the subsystems and the muscles, and how they all work together, why they work together, the importance of, you know, the deep longitudinal subsystem in, in conjunction with the posterior oblique subsystem, as well as all the other ones. Like we said, you can't really just, you know, pinpoint specific ones, but these are the primary and understanding the anatomy, how the body kind of works together. And if there's a compensation at one point, how it can affect everything else up the kinetic chain. And so when we're going through and thinking about designing programs, Look at some of the different ones we just talked about today. If you haven't, try to incorporate those. But remember that no matter what, the posterior chain needs to be worked on, needs to be a focal point in all phases of training, no matter what kind of load you're lifting, as long as you know that they can do it with quality movement. Yeah. So go back to what we say. We train movements, not muscles. And we go through our phase of training and then everything kind of continues to build from there. And the beautiful thing, if people want to be more powerful, if they want to burn more calories, whatever their fitness goals are, hitting that posterior chain is without a doubt going to get them there. So, Wendy, let's give everyone our contact information. I'll let you go first here. Sure. If you guys want to email me with either comments or questions, always feel free to do so at wendy.bats at nasm.org. Or you can find me on Instagram at wendy.bats13. And my information's right here. You got my Instagram at dr.martymiller72. And then my email, marty.miller at nasm.org. So Wendy, thanks again for all those insightful details that you provide each and every week. This is a great topic. And for all of you that joined us, thank you so much. And of course, we look forward to seeing you next week on the Master Instructor Roundtable.